Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is about the COVID-19 coronavirus. You know, many people are afraid of what's happening right now. It's in the news constantly. It's considered a global pandemic. Thousands have died so far. Experts estimate as much as 70% of the human population will be, will be infected eventually. Uh, maybe it won't go that high, but some people are saying that. Some experts are also predicting that millions of people will die around the world. Governments are taking drastic actions. Schools are closing, like my university closed recently. Uh, Seattle shut down all the public schools. There are countries that are shutting down entirely. Uh, There are travel bans. Large gatherings in the United States are being uh, canceled, like Emerald City Comic Con, which my nonprofit was going to attend, but we're not going anymore. South by Southwest, my friend was going to play there, and that's been canceled. The NBA has canceled all their games and many other cancellations. The Olympics might get canceled. The stock market has crashed. The oil prices have plummeted. Lots of people have lost a lot of money in, you know, in their retirement funds. People are worried. They're not leaving the house. In Seattle, traffic has never been this empty. Some of my favorite restaurants in Seattle are closing because no one is going out to eat. I know that pales in comparison to people dying, but still. Everyone's buying all the hand sanitizer and the toilet paper and so on. From, you know, there, there's no toilet paper in the stores and, and no hand sanitizer. And some areas are running out of medical supplies. And I just read that Tom Hanks and his wife have tested positive for, for, positive for COVID-19. You know, in some ways, we've never seen anything like this before. But in other ways, it's reminiscent of things in the past, like the HIV panic of the 80s. This sort of thing. But, you know, since the Internet age, I think this is the first time we've seen something on this scale. I have a feeling that in 50 years, this year, 2020, will be remembered for one thing. It'll be, you know, known for the year that COVID-19 was a scare, you know, that, that, you know, in the same way that 1945 is known for one thing, the end of World War II. Or 1989 is known for the fall of the Berlin Wall. 2020 will be known as the global coronavirus pandemic panic, the year that everyone woke up to the reality of these sorts of pandemics. Or, you know, it's hard to know exactly how society, how history will look back on this time and how we will deal with this. You know, will they see intelligence and courage in our human population? Will they see people coming together? Will they see smart ways of dealing with this and plans made for the future? Will we look back at this and say like, oh, good thing we went through that because we sure learned a lot? Or are we going to look back and uh, see a broken system that never changed? In this episode, I'm going to provide my take on the situation. Other content providers are already talking about the medical situation or the political situation. So I don't really need to add to that. But I've found that at least I'm not hearing any voice on the psychological situation. How are we supposed to deal with this emotionally? How, how, do we, how are we supposed to see it? Um, what do we do with our emotions during this time? So that's what I'm going to talk about today. And there's a lot of things to say. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor here in Seattle. 
So I've broken this down into five topics. Number one topic is don't judge others for their reactions. Some people are really scared, while other people aren't so scared. I've seen people from either end of the spectrum attacking the other side. You know, the relaxed people are saying, everyone is freaking out over nothing. And the scared people are saying, why aren't more people freaking out? At either end, in my book, there's validity. If you're scared, that's okay. If you're not concerned, that's okay too. There are different ways of looking at the data. Having said that, we all have a moral responsibility that I will get into later. Also, governments and other institutions have a different responsibility. They need to uh, you know, enact things to be you know, better safe than sorry. You don't want a government to say like, well, you know, we'll probably get through this, no big deal. So it's different on the institutional level. But on the individual level, there's a lot of variance in terms of how we're dealing with this. I have friends who are making jokes about it. I have friends who are freaking out about it. I consider both points of view valid. It's fine. We uh, you know, need to recognize that there's a lot of different ways of reacting. We shouldn't be attacking each other as we go through this. So that's number one. Don't judge others for their reactions. Number two, and this is really the main thing I want to talk about, which is emotional decision-making. And the following talk is my model. It's not based on anything else. So how do we manage our emotions through this process? If you're afraid of, you know, COVID-19, how much fear should you be feeling? What should you do with that fear? Does your fear do any good for you? And what I like to break this down uh, into two different things here, which is how much fear is rational? And number two is analyzing the cost benefit of the fear. And so I'll get more into specifics in a second. But first, let me give you an analogy. So let's say I have a daughter and she has epilepsy. She's 25 years old. She has a job and she drives her car to work every day. She's on medication, so she's getting treated, and she doesn't have seizures very often. But occasionally she does have seizures, even on her meds. So she could have a seizure while driving and not have time to pull over and get into a terrible car accident and hurt herself, maybe even kill herself or hurt someone else. It's not likely, but it could happen. Okay, so let's look at that situation. I'm her father, and I have some fear about that. How much fear is rational for me to feel? Well, it's hard to say. Some fear is probably rational, right? Um, and so that's the first step. Is like, And I could go into more detail there, but that's one thing to think about. I'll get more into detail with COVID-19 when we get to that section. So the first thing is to ask us, you know, how much fear is rational for me to feel? Is it even rational to have any fear? And I would say, given this analogy, for me, I would have some fear. So then number two is the cost-benefit analysis of that fear. What good can come from the fear? So my model uh, to, to analyze this ha has to do with the notion that emotions have a function. Let's take anger and joy before we get into fear. So anger is an emotion, right? And we evolved emotions as a function. Most of our psychological uh, uh, expressions or instincts or reactions or um, experiences have some kind of helpfulness to us in terms of survival, 
whether it's surviving from danger or it's surviving in a social society. Um, and anger is no different. So anger motivates us to seek justice is one way of looking at it. There's other ways of looking at it, but that's one way to put it. So we f- the reason why I evolved anger is to seek justice. You can even think of other animals and their anger responses as seeking justice, so to speak, or you know, trying to right a wrong. So let's say you know, someone pushes your mother to the ground. Well, you're going to feel anger, right? And that anger is going to motivate you to protect your mother, and you're going to go over there and you're going to kick the ass of the person who you know, pushed your mother down. So anger motivates us. If we don't have that anger, then we might not have the appropriate response. Of course, anger can cause bad responses and dysfunctional responses, but I hope you get my point. Joy is another emotion. This, mo- this emotion motivates others to repeat the pleasing behavior because we like to see joy in other people, especially if we're the cause of that joy. For example, you have a son and you throw your son up in the air and then you catch him. And he giggles with joy and he, he's, he's feeling joy and he expresses that joy. And now you know that he likes being thrown up in the air and caught. And so it encourages you to do it again. You know, when children have uh, those kinds of reactions, it's infectious. We just want to please children. And so that's one function of joy, if not the function of joy. So let's get into fear. What's, what, you know, what function does fear have? Well, it motivates us to protect ourselves from danger. It alerts us to danger, and it motivates us to protect ourselves from danger. So let's say you're on a hike and you see a rattlesnake. Well, you feel fear. Your heart races. Adrenaline pumps through your veins. And all of your attention is on that snake. Anything else that you know, distracts you, you is completely you know, uh, ignored by your brain. It's all on that snake. Your fear is telling you that you need to get away from that snake. So you slowly walk away and your fear subsides. So what is our fear telling us to do when we feel fear with COVID-19? So what do we do with that? Well, we, we want to, uh, it, it should motivate us to do something. There's a usefulness to the fear. We shouldn't just accept the fear response and that should be the end of the paragraph. There's many more sentences after I feel afraid. So the fear motivates one, evaluation, two, action plan, three, maintenance of the fear and of the plan, which I'll get into here using this analogy of uh, if I had a daughter and she had um, seizures and she was driving to work. So one, let's look at it. So let's evaluate what's happening right here. Okay. So how likely will my daughter have a seizure while driving and not be able to pull over in time? You know, what's the likelihood on a daily basis or on a yearly basis? You know, over the span of five years, how likely will she have a seizure while driving during that time and not recognize the signs and not have a chance to pull over? Another question I might ask myself is, how responsible is my daughter regarding self-monitoring and self-care? How, how responsible is she in taking her medication and making sure that she does all that she can do to reduce the likelihood of having a seizure? So those are questions that I might ask myself as I evaluate. You know, the, the fear motivates me to evaluate. If I wasn't afraid, I might not take the time to focus my attention on evaluating the situation. Number two is an action plan. What should I do? Given my fear, given my evaluation of the situation, what's the plan? What do I do? 
Should I tell her to stop driving? Should I consult with more professionals? Should I, should I uh, scour the internet for solutions? You know, that kind of thing. You know, what's my action? What am I going to do? This is important because fear helps us to pay attention and uh, develop an action plan. I see a rattlesnake. I'm afraid I need a plan to get away from that rattlesnake. Um, I have a daughter who is at risk of dying in a car accident. I need to evaluate the situation and make a plan. And then the third thing is a maintenance. After you enact the plan, you want to maintain the plan, and you also want to have a maintenance uh, plan for your fear. So how often should I check in with evaluation and the action plan? Should I, should I check in with, you know, once I enact my plan regarding my daughter, uh, my, of course, I don't have control over her because she's 25, but, you know, what's my approach? And uh, how, you know, once I enact the plan that I decide, you know, is the best plan given my evaluation, how often do I reevaluate that plan? Also, how often do I check in with my fear? and make sure that my fear is is helpful or not. You know, some fear is going to sneak in there. And then I say to myself, okay, well, what am I going to do with that fear when I feel it? Do I need to reevaluate the plan or not? Now, I'm not saying that we have control over our fear and anxiety, but we need some kind of model to guide us when we're having fear so that we're not just spinning our wheels. I I find that to be very helpful for clients. Okay, so let's look at COVID-19, the coronavirus. So um, number one, how much fear is rational for you to feel? Well, it's hard to say with COVID-19. There's a lot that's still up in the air. But, you know, some fear is definitely rational given the percentage of deaths. But But this has to all be put in perspective. How worried were you... Uh, last year about the flu? How worried are you about heart disease? How worried are you about stroke, cancer, car accidents, food poisoning, these kinds of things? All these things have been present and a threat to your life and a threat to the people you love for since you were born. And how, how worried have you been about these very, you know, severe ongoing threats to your life and to those around you? How worried were you? COVID-19 does not introduce a new threat to your life. I mean, I should say, it doesn't introduce, it's not like you weren't having a threat to your life before. You have an additional threat to your life. And one could even say it's not necessarily additional because, you know, other coronaviruses might have actually been a threat to your life. Not as much, obviously. But so we have to put it in perspective. Now, again, I'm not saying... Um, you're not supposed to have fear. And I'm not saying it's irrational to have fear. I'm actually saying it's, it's definitely rational to have some fear. But it has to be put in perspective. And again, I'm not here to tell you how much fear you're supposed to have, you know, between a scale from one to 10. That's up to you to decide. That's up for everyone to decide. Every individual has to decide for themselves how much fear is rational for them, given this model. That's the important thing. I'm just giving my kind of spin on it. You know, the thing you might want to think about when, you know, say you have a fear that's very high is you want to think, you know, is your fear amplified because it's a novel way to die? Because there's always been ways to die. Um, Is your fear amplified because it's in the news 24-7 and you're watching the news 24-7? Is it, 
You know, is it is it rational to be an eight on a scale from one to ten? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. You can make an argument that an eight is totally justified given all of the factors. I'm not going to argue with you on that. But it's up to everyone to, de- to decide and to ask those questions and not to just walk away with a knee-jerk reaction. Okay. So numbers, so that's how much fear is rational, and that's debatable. But it's a question that everyone has to ask themselves. Number two is the cost-benefit analysis of that fear, however high that it is. So what good can come from you worrying about COVID-19? And again, as I went through with the daughter seizure thing, we want to channel that fear into three steps. Number one is evaluation, two, action plan, three, maintenance of plan and fear. So number one, evaluate. How much are you and your loved ones at risk of dying or being harmed by COVID-19? You know, what's the percentage chance? And having a sense of that, right, is important. Also, what exactly is the risk? You know, who is at risk? That kind of thing. Who is more at risk? How much more at risk are we in addition to all the other ongoing non-novel risks like flu and heart disease and this kind of thing, accidents? Um, trying to figure out probability, having, an, having a good sense of probability is helpful here. Statistics helps you in this situation. For example, let's say one way to look at this, and again, I'm not saying this is the right way, but one way to look at this is before the COVID-19 outbreak, so last year, you had, on a scale from 1 to 10, you were worried about dying from some kind of virus you were like a 1.5 out of 10. You had, a, you had a occasional worries, but usually it would go away. So you would have, but on the scale of things, on average, you were a 1.5 out of 10 on, you know, uh, scale of anxiety about dying from an infectious disease like flu or SARS or Ebola or something like that. And so after uh, COVID-19. So, so now when we add COVID-19 into all the other ways that one can die from an infectious disease, let's say that you're, you know, twice as likely to die now from an infectious disease, you know, in, in 2020, I don't know the exact stats. We don't, we won't know until uh, much later, but let's say just for the sake of this argument that you're, you're twice as likely statistically now uh, to die from an infectious disease. For many people, I just want to say, by the way, for many people statistically, um, twice as likely to die from a infectious disease is still extremely unlikely to die from an infectious disease because last year, most people, particularly younger people, meaning, you know, people who aren't at risk uh, of, you know, other kinds of uh, health conditions, we're extremely unlikely to die from an infectious disease. So twice as likely or even 10 times as likely to die from an infectious disease right now is still, still means you're extremely unlikely. That doesn't negate the risk, of course. It also doesn't negate the risk to the people who are at risk, meaning that if you, you know, contract the disease and pass it on, um, then you are, you know, and you were irresponsible. I'll get into that later. But anyway, so... So if you were on a scale from 1 to 10, 1.5 last year, and you're twice as likely to die from an infectious disease this year, then perhaps you should, your anxiety should be a 2. But if your anxiety is a 9, 
then you might evaluate for yourself, huh, well, it's, it's rational for me to be a two or a three. It's not rational for me to be an eight, nine, or 10. And the fact that I'm an eight, nine, or 10 has to do with the fact that this is new and that's in the news and I'm paying attention to it and my, my perspective is off and I need to sort of attempt to try to gain perspective to reduce my anxiety down to what I, I consider rational to me, which is a two or a three. Again, I'm not saying it is rational. I'm saying you have to decide that for yourself. Maybe you decide that it is 100% rational to be 10 on a scale from 1 to 10. But you have to walk yourself through the steps. And if you decide that that's rational, then then it is rational uh, because no one can decide that for anyone else. Okay. So that's a, that's evaluation. So we so you out there, I want you to evaluate on a scale from 1 to 10 what is the rational amount of fear? All right. So now that we have that number, what's the action plan? What do we do with that fear? Because remember, fear motivates us, motivates us to seek safety, motivates us away from the danger. That's the only purpose of fear. Uh, if we have fear beyond that, that's, that's extra extraneous, harmful fear that's just going to degrade our lives. Now, we might not have any control over that fear, but we need to identify what fear is helpful and what fear is not helpful. Uh, Just as a random example, uh, the universe is expected to have a heat death at some point, meaning that there will be no more energy left in the universe to fuel anything, including life. That is likely to happen, the expansion of the universe, blah, blah, blah. And when that happens, no matter what is you know, happening, all life will die. Well, what's the rationale to worry about that? Let's say you're, you know, let's say you're even a five on a scale from one to 10 about worrying about that. Is it rational to worry about that? You know, I don't know. It's hard. You know, it's an opinion for me. I'm going to say, no, it's not rational to worry about that. It's just going to happen. You're not going to be alive to see it. So, you know, just, it's not worth worrying about. (laughs) So, there's a there's a spectrum of like rationality, right? Okay. Now one could say climate change, we should be more worried on a daily basis, right? You know, anyway. Okay, so whatever number you are, you know, one to ten, you just take a second to think about that. What is what's your decided rational worry number and what worry number are you actually feeling? Maybe they're the same, maybe they're not. Okay. So now, what do we do? So, so again, uh, anyway, so what do we do with that, with that fear that we consider to be rational? Should you stay home? Should you demand that your loved ones stay home? Should you proceed normally but wash your hands and avoid touching your face? Should you post things on Facebook advocating for certain political views? Because fear will do that, right? If you're afraid and you feel like your society isn't doing the right thing, might motivate you to start posting stuff on Facebook. How often should you monitor the news? Because fear motivates us to monitor the news. A big reason why anyone watches the news is because of fear, which is fine, but we have to contemplate how much is rational and how much monitoring of the news is helpful to us. How often should you monitor your health? You know, your fever, or you know, the way your body feels. How often should you monitor those people around you and their health, etc.? So these are questions that are based on your evaluation of how much fear is rational. 
not based on how much fear you actually feel. That's the big distinction here is you have to do your best to, you know, differentiate and figure out how much fear should I be feeling? Um, You know, don't shame yourself. Like I said earlier, if you feel fear and you decide that it's rational to fear to be an eight, then be an eight. You know, that's what you, you, you've, you've looked at the data and you believe it's rational to be an eight. Okay. What's your action plan given that eight? What are you going to, what are you going to do with that? Now, typically an eight is going to do a lot more things and be a lot more vigilant than someone who's a three, but it's all based on what you believe the rational level of fear is. And please, for the love of God, people do not judge other people for their level of fear. But if you are an eight and you evaluate, you should be a four, then don't operate as if don't have an action plan based on an eight, have an action plan based on a four, and then have part of your action plan based on what I'm about to say here. So number, so we have evaluation action plan and three, we have maintenance of plan of fear. So, on, so once you enact your plan of, you know, you're going to stay home, you're going to wash your hands, you're going to do whatever, how, you know, how often should you reevaluate your plan? It's hard to know. You know, things are changing pretty quickly, so maybe it's more often than otherwise. But the other thing you want to ask yourself is how do you reduce your anxiety after you enact your plan? So one, how do you get yourself from an eight to a four? And then also, you know, if you're a four and you enact a plan, uh, one way to see it is that once you've enacted your plan, you should strive to reduce your anxiety from a four because your four, your anxiety has done its job. You know, the analogy of the rattlesnake, you see the rattlesnake, you, you have a spike in anxiety, you are focused on this rattlesnake, you're focused on the danger, you're focused on the behaviors to get away from that rattlesnake, you get away from the rattlesnake. Um, you're in the car and you're driving home and you go to bed and you're still worried about the rattlesnake. Well, the fear was helpful when you were in the face of the rattlesnake. The fear is no longer helpful because the fact that you're alone in your house, the fear is now not helpful anymore because there's no rattlesnakes. So there's no point in having the, 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 the fear. The fear was very useful at one point to motivate you to take an action. Later on, the fear was not helpful because there's one, no reason. It's not rational. And two, there's nothing you can do. And anything you would do would be uh, counterproductive because, uh, you know, I guess searching the house. I mean, mean, let's say that there's a little bit of fear. You search the house. There's no rattlesnake. You go to bed. You have no. Then you're like, okay, now I really got get got to work on reducing this fear. Now, again, I'm not not saying it's easy to to reduce one's fear. Take it from an anxious person. I'm here to tell you (laughs) it's hard to reduce one's fear. But if you do nothing, then your fear will have its, uh, you know, cake and eat it too, so to speak. So how do you reduce your anxiety once you enact your plan? All right. So to mo- so that's, that's my model. I hope you're walking yourself through it. Now I'm going to walk myself through it. I'm going to model. I'll tell you my kind of process. So number one, how much fear is rational for me? Again, this isn't for you. This is for me. For me, if I was to put a number to it, I would say that it's rational to be like a three. That's two or three, honestly, because it's concerning to me. Uh, I don't think I'm much at risk, but I am at risk. You know, like, um, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons, you roll a lot of dice. And sometimes, you know, like one time I was playing Dungeons and Dragons and I rolled a 23 times in a row. 
And I don't let's see. The odds of that are what? 400 or 800 to one or something. I'm not sure exactly. I'm hard to, it's hard to remember my statistics, but it's extremely rare. You know, uh, percentage wise, it's less than 1% that you're going to run, that you're going to roll three twenties in a row on a 20 sided die. But it happens, you know, it's like you, you know, roll a dice enough times, weird things happen. So uh, the fact that I'm like personally, statistically, percentage-wise, very low likelihood of dying, and Stacy, my wife, is very low likelihood of dying, and my family members are relatively low likelihood of dying, it still doesn't mean that, you know, you roll the dice enough times, someone's number is going to come up. That could be me, it could be my wife, it could be other people. So there is some level of fear that is helpful because it it will help me to motivate you know to 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 take a plan so for me i'm going to say two or three uh and maybe in the past i should have been a little bit more worried about the flu just because it's ongoing you know it kind of makes me reevaluate that i'm a bit of a germaphobe i'm a bit of a i have a i have a tad of ocd so uh and general anxiety so that kind of fear isn't unfamiliar to me. But anyway, so I'm going to say a two or a three. That's me. Now, if you're an eight, if you're a 10, and you evaluate that as rational, that's totally cool with me. But for me, it's a two or a three. Um, also, you know, I know I'm going to die. I, I think about that a lot, and I'm I'm okay with that, uh, it, you know, in in you know, in spirit, if you will. <laughs> it bums me out that everyone dies. I wish we could all live forever, including our pets. But, you know, it is life. Death is part of life. And if I die from COVID because my, you know, dice come up three 20s in a row, then, you know, that's just the way it's going to be. If it's not that, it's, it's going to be something else at some point, right? So that's just my perspective. It's not yours necessarily, but it's mine. Okay, so number two is cost-benefit analysis of, of that fear. So if I'm, if I'm a three or two, um, you know, I, I think I'm just going to say what's rational is a two. Uh, that's what I'm going to say. So a, a very low level of concern for me. But that's just me because I have enough anxiety as it is. And so <laughs> I don't need to add to more of it. But anyway. Uh, now, I will also say, as I said earlier, our governments and our systems and our healthcare systems, they can't operate on a two. They got to operate better safe than sorry. They got to take action. They need to. They need. Uh, they need to take uh, severe action. Um, now, also say that just because I'm a two doesn't mean I'm not going to take severe action. It just means that I just sort of think that if I'm feeling like I'm a five, you know, tonight when I lay my head down to sleep and I'm feeling a five, and but I've just I've evaluated for myself that a two is rational, then I will spend a little bit of time in my brain trying to reduce myself to a two, if that makes sense. Anyway, okay, so cost-benefit analysis of the fear. What good can come from my level two anxiety? So uh, so evaluation is the first thing. So, you know, we do evaluation, we do action plan, and then we do maintenance. I'm just putting my little numbers in my notes here. So number one is evaluation. Uh, the The... You know, the anxiety motivates me to evaluate the situation. So I've spent a a fair amount of time looking at the statistics and I'm resigned that I'm probably 50-50 chance that I'm going to get the COVID-19 virus this year. Um, And I'm 
probably going to have minor symptoms as if I had a cold or the flu or something like that. The people I'm really worried about are older people in my family, namely my parents. They are smart, but they're also kind of cavalier about things. I've, I've reached out to them and I was like, so you're staying home, right? Because they, they, they actually live in Issaquah and that's where some of the initial deaths were. And I love them for the fact that they're cavalier about it and I can't change that. But at the same time, uh, it's sort of it, – I'm worried. Um, but anyway <laughs> – Okay, so I've so you know I could go into detail in terms of all my evaluation of of my the probability of all the different factors, but I won't bore you with that. But you know I've done a lot of those steps as most people have. Number two is action plan. Okay, given my my two level of anxiety and my evaluation of the probabilities, what am I going to do about it? What's my action plan? Well, for me, I'm fairly conservative because I can, and I'm sort of a homebody. I have the luxury of staying home. And Stacy also has the luxury of staying home. She can kind of switch her work around. Um, I'm teaching from home. I, you know, I can do video conference. I'm not going to the university for meetings. They closed my university anyway. But I actually, I actually uh, stopped going to the university like a week before my university closed down. I'm doing with session. I'm doing sessions with clients over the phone or video conference. I'm doing supervision over video conference. If I go to the store, I'm being careful. You know, uh, that sort of thing. So I'm basically quarantining myself and my family. But I also went on a skiing trip to Lake Tahoe last week for five days. Um, I went to the airport. I touched all the things, you know. I uh, had to sit next to sick people on the plane, you know. They're, you know they're, to me, that was worth the risk. I could have stayed home. I could have not done that. Uh, but to me, it was like I did the calculation and my action plan did not include canceling this Lake Tahoe trip. I'm also ordering takeout food because I want to support our local businesses. I don't want them to go out of business. And plus, uh, me and my wife like to eat a lot of – go to a lot of restaurants. So I don't want to stop that. I also tend to order a lot of takeout food anyway. Uh, tonight, we're going to eat Cuban food from Geo's on Greenwood. I'm also keeping my appointments with the DMV. I actually had a driver's license that was expired months ago. I didn't even realize it, which is uncharacteristic of me. Um, I also got a TSA pre-check thing. I had to do an appointment, meaning I had to, you know, exchange passports and, you know, I had to have my fing- my uh, fingerprints taken, which means I'm touching a lot of services. Um I'm also not avoiding contact with my wife and my family. Uh, maybe they get infected or I get infected um, and I infect them. It's not worth it to me not to have physical contact with my family. You know, I'm also still planning on going on my trips to Minneapolis to see my niece graduate from pharm- pharmacology school or pharmacy school. And we're planning on a trip to go to New York City. And, you know, I'm still planning on going on those trips. We'll see. Maybe Things will change and they'll shut everything down. But I'm still planning on that. I just plan on, you know, what this what I did in Lake Tahoe last week, which is washing my hands, not touching my face, you know, making sure I do all the things. I also plan on monitoring my health and other people around me, you know, take notice of a cough or a fever, take take temperature, this kind of thing. And I also have a, a plan that if I if anyone has any symptoms, we're going to immediately, even if they're small symptoms, we're going to immediately call the doctor and we're going to take actions medically for that, you know, maybe hospitalization, who knows. So that's my plan based on my evaluation of the, of the danger.
Now, how, what's the maintenance plan? You know, what do we do on, what do I do on going with the plan and with my fear? How often should I reevaluate my plan? Well, normally I might say like once a month, but really since the coronavirus is constantly evolving and honestly, since my wife brings it up every day, multiple times a day, because <laughs> she's looking at the news too, it's probably inevitable that I'll reevaluate once per day, but not more than that. Okay. Once per day, I'm going to think about the plan and say, okay, you know, do I need to change it? No. So this is in contrast to people who will reevaluate their plan constantly all day long. That's not helpful, right? Unless it is, but it usually isn't. Also, how do I reduce my anxiety while I enact my plan? You know, if I'm a, if I'm feeling an eight or because I can it uh, through this experience, what's been my peak? I would say just before I left for take for Lake Tahoe, I was probably like a seven. Um, so how do I reduce if, you know, if there are spikes, but even, you know, at a two, uh, I want to live my life. This is an ongoing issue. If I've done everything I can to reduce my risk, I don't want to worry about it anymore. I want to be a one. So I'm going to enact all my normal anti-anxiety management skills, um, you know, perspective, deep breathing, uh, mindfulness, all that kind of thing. Remind myself that my age bracket is not particularly at risk. Remind myself that my parents are doing everything they can. Remind myself that I might have actually even already had it. Uh, I had minor symptoms a couple weeks ago. And looking back, uh, given that some people have minor symptoms, it's possible I've already had it, which would be reassuring, right? Um, and, you know, remind – this is a big one is I will remind myself that I'll be damned if I'm going to waste my time on this planet worrying about things that I can't do anything about. So tonight, for example, after I record this episode, I'm going to kick back with my wife and we're going to enjoy watching Love is Blind on Netflix. And I'm not going to worry about all this stuff because I, you know, I've done my part. I had my emotion. I did my plan. I evaluated it. And there's no more use for my anxiety. I'll check in with my anxiety tomorrow. Again, that's just me. I'm not telling you how to live your life. Uh... I hope that's abundantly clear. Everyone has a different take on the data and a different take on what's rational for them. For example, for some people, it might mean extreme measures that are more than me. For other people, it might mean very little measures. I'll get into the moral responsibility in a second. But again, so just to review, this is my model for ethical, sorry, this is my model for emotional decision making. Number one, how much fear is rational? Number two, the cost-benefit analysis of fear. What good can come from your worry? Emotions are functional. They have a reason. They have a purpose. So the fear should motivate you to evaluate the, the danger, develop an action plan based on that evaluation, and then develop a maintenance for the plan, uh, a maintenance plan for the plan and for the fear. <laughs> okay, so to review... Number one, don't judge others for their reactions. Number two, uh, emotional decision-making. Number three, we all have a moral responsibility to do what we can to help others. If you're sick, do not contaminate other people, particularly older people or people with underlying health conditions or people who are in contact with these people, which is basically almost everybody. So this usually means staying home if you're symptomatic. Please, for the love of God, stay home. 
and if you're an employer, make sure you have proper uh, sick days and health care. Sneeze and cough in proper ways. It drives me fucking crazy when I – I would say and anecdotally 2% of people know how to cough and sneeze correctly. People still just put their the palm of their hand against their face. All you're doing is you're spraying all that shit sideways and, and upwards. It's it, you're just infecting everyone in this. You're just blasting it to the side instead of instead of forward. Of course, I guess there's some of it that's getting on your hands that's you're sparing others, but you're not doing much good. You need to do it into the crook of your elbow, or better yet, what I do, I sneeze into my shirt, meaning I pull up the, the collar of my shirt, you know, a t-shirt. And I sneeze down onto my chest. <laughs> also, wash your hands. The reason why you do that is because you don't want to affect yourself. You know, you don't want to touch your face. But also, your hands, might you might have picked up the virus somewhere. And you don't want to transfer the virus to another surface. You want to wash your hands. Also, do not hoard supplies like face masks and hand sanitizer. My God, people, do not go to the store and buy a thousand of one item. All you're doing is you're taking it away from other people. Buy what you need. And if you bought a lot of them, share it with other people. Also, help at-risk people. There's various ways to do that. I won't bore you with the details. Look it up. Also, you have a moral responsibility to do what you can to help others by voting for politicians who understand science and don't vote for politicians who disparage science. If you vote for uh, you know, politicians who disparage science, you are contributing to the death of your neighbors and your family members. We need uh, people, leaders who understand science and follow science. If we're going to survive as a species, we need leaders to fully understand science and believe the experts and respect the experts. Voting uh, for people that are primarily uh, focused on the economy and nothing else is an immoral act by an individual. If you are primarily concerned with fucking taxes and your, uh, you know, your 401k at the, you know, at the expense of everything else, you are an immoral human. Do not vote that way. I'm not saying Republican, Democrat. I'm saying individual politicians because they all run the gamut. It's not like Democrats can't be, you know, money people, if that makes any sense. <laughs> anyway, so vote in a way that is moral to humans, not to rich people. Anyway. If you can, contribute to organizations that help, like Doctors Without Borders. And of course, get vaccinated when it becomes available. Same for the flu and other kinds of diseases. Get vaccinated. It's your moral responsibility to participate in the maintenance of what we call herd immunity, meaning that if, you know, uh, if 95% of the population is immunized, the chance of a pandemic reduces by significant orders of magnitude. Okay, so that's number three is we all have a moral responsibility to do what we can to help others. So let's say you have a fear of one and you're totally unconcerned for yourself. You're, you know, you're licking your hands after you're touching doorknobs. You're, that's your decision. That's fine. But that doesn't mean that you can spread the virus to other people. That's, that's the point. If you're not worried about yourself getting it, you do have a moral responsibility 
to not infect other people because it can harm others. Number four, we have to remember that death is inevitable. We have to face that reality. And our society tends to try to ignore that. We like to think of ourselves as a society that can end such things like death. But unfortunately, we can't. People die every day. About 500,000 people die around the world from flu. Half a million people around the earth die from flu every year. And about 40,000 people in the United States die from flu every year, give or take. 40,000 people in the United States. That's a lot of people. To put it into uh, perspective, something like 50 people die from terrorism every year, and usually it's domestic terrorism, you know. So also to put this in perspective, as of right now, recording this, there's about 5,000 deaths from COVID-19. So 500,000 flu deaths every year, and so far 5,000 deaths from COVID-19. Now, the number is supposed to be much higher than that. (laughs) It's probably going to be in the millions of deaths from COVID-19. But at the same time, uh, it's important to recognize that infections and heart disease and Alzheimer's and stroke and cancer routinely you know, sweeps across the, the globe. It's not infectious per se, but, you know, it, it does kill millions upon millions of people all the time. Again, I'm not saying we're not supposed to worry about death. I'm just saying we have to remember that death is inevitable. And what are we going to do with ourselves? Which leads us to the, my last point here, which is number five, existential therapy. There's a whole branch of therapy that is dedicated to this topic of you know, death and that kind of thing. And I've done whole episodes on this, but just to go very briefly, existential therapy, number one premise is that suffering is an, an, an inherent part of life. Death is an inherent part of life. But we have the freedom to choose how we respond to that suffering. We cannot end death, but we do have the freedom to choose how we respond to the reality of death. Number two, We need to have meaning in our lives. And without meaning or purpose, it leads to depression, anxiety, confusion, aimlessness, this kind of thing. We need a purpose. Why am I here? For example, for me, I have been thinking about the purpose and the meaning of my life ever since I was a teenager. I'm not sure why, but I have. The reason why I became a therapist and, you know, I used to be a businessman uh, in in Bellevue working, you know, in tech stuff uh, in Seattle. And I thought about my life and I said, you know what? Uh, I was 23, 24 or something. And I was like, you know what? This is not the purpose of my life. I want to, I want to, I want to do something that feels meaningful to me. And I became a therapist. Then I became a teacher. Then I became a podcaster. These are all very meaningful to me. And when I think about dying, if I was to die tomorrow, I know that I did all everything I could to live a meaningful life. I didn't waste it. So that's important. You know, because when we live in our purpose, the threat of death tends not to worry us so much because we're like, well, you know, I've, I've always known I had limited time and I've always geared my life in a way that was not a waste of time. I did not waste my time. It's not always for everyone, but, you know, that's, that's the idea of existential therapy. Number three is Meaning and happiness are not given to you. You have to build a life that provides meaning and happiness, meaning that you can't search for meaning. 
Now, I know Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, but really what it is, is you, and Viktor Frankl would even say this, is that you have to build a life that has meaning, and then you find your meaning, so to speak. You can't just sit there quietly and search for a meaning. You have to do something. You have to take action. You have to build a life that has meaning to you. It's, you know, existential therapy is action-oriented. It's not thought-oriented. You, know, you do think as you act, but you have to eventually act because that's the way you enact your purpose in your life. And the last thing here, number four, you can't search for meaning. Um, wait, what am I talking about here? I think I, I think I just said that. Anyway. Okay, so to review, number one, don't judge others for their reactions. Number two, have an emotional decision-making process that involves – you know, uh, how much fear is rational, evaluation of the situation that makes you afraid, the action plan and maintenance. So, you know, what are you going to do about it? Number three, we all have a moral responsibility to do what we can to help other people. Number four, death is inevitable. And number five, look into existential therapy. Okay. So that's the end of my thing here. But I wanted to go to Facebook and ask people what they thought. And so they offered a lot of thoughts here. Uh, Linz on Facebook said, how do we cope with the loneliness and giddiness of being stuck at home? And I like that question. How do we cope with the loneliness and the giddiness of being stuck at home? Um, so this is just me. Everyone has to make their own choice about this. But this is my general advice is consider it a vacation rather than a prison sentence, you know? Don't waste it. You're probably not working as much. Um, you know, do the things that you've always wanted to do that you couldn't do otherwise. Uh, maybe clean your house. Start a hobby that you always wanted to do. Call people. Go for walks and hikes. That's the nice thing about going for walks and hikes is you're not likely to be infected if you're going on a hike or going on a walk. Um, the other thing is is think about, you know, if you want to, how you might transition to working from home more. There's a lot of benefits to working from home, um, depending. But uh, I think I hope that this kind of motivates people. Jonathan says, um, regarding private practice, if and when to shut your practice down. So Jonathan's asking, you know, when do I shut my own private practice down? Uh, it depends. Um, I switched. I've switched to Zoom and phone this week basically to be better safe than sorry. But, you know, I, I kind of contemplated it for a second because I was like, what's the chance that my clients will come sick? And two, what's the chance that my clients would even infect me if they were in my office? Because, you know, we don't touch each other and uh, they just sit on my couch. So, um, you know, what's what's the chance that I would be infected by them? But, you know, better safe than sorry – um, what if they sit down and then another client sits down and uh, the second client gets infected by the first client? You know, plus uh, I've done a lot of therapy and supervision over the phone and over Zoom. And I'm, you know, I, I can get 90 to 95 percent of what I want out of those modes. And sometimes actually phone and video, um, I get different kinds of reactions from clients that can be interesting. So. I said, you know, better save the sorry for me. But, you know, everyone has to make their own choice. You also ask, you know, how to protect yourself and clients. Tell people uh, tell people to stay home if they're sick. No one touch the face. Disinfect. Tell clients to disinfect after they leave. That kind of thing. Last question you asked, Jonathan, is how to have a conversation with clients about not coming in possibly for several weeks. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, do your best uh, when you get a chance, you know, have a conversation about it. Tell them what, what to expect. You don't want them to be up in the air. Tell them that you're still available and that you're, you know, you're still uh, able to meet with them. It's just not in person. Um, if they're particularly upset, um, maybe increase the session uh, frequency. Maybe that'll help them. Maybe they need other professionals in their lives. Hard to know. The other thing that I talk with my supervisees about is learn how to convey empathy and compassion over the phone or over video. That's very important. Christy, good old Christy, she says, how do people who are feeling a lot of anxiety and stress of the isolation? How do people who are feeling? Um, So, yeah, what do we do about all the anxiety and the stress and the isolation? Um, I think... What I was talking about earlier, my five things here, uh, I think you could use with therapy. You know, again, don't judge others. Don't judge yourself. Emotional decision-making model, um, you know, enacting your moral responsibility, recognizing death is inevitable, and thus, what's the meaning of your life? Um, so I would do that, but it's hard to know, you know, every client's going to be different, um, but at the isolation, what I might encourage people to do is reach out to others as much as possible, phone, video conference, Facebook, this kind of stuff. I'm doing that. I'm texting people more. Uh, it just feels kind of good to connect with everybody. Um, it also might be a good time for your clients to reevaluate things. You know, they're sitting at home, they're bored. Um, you know, wh- where, where's their life going? What do they want to do with themselves? What is the meaning of their lives? Maybe it's a, a luxury of time and space to just think about things. Lise in Vel- Belgium says here every on Facebook, she writes, he or she writes, or they, uh, here everything is on lockdown. Closed shops, restaurants, bars, schools. I prepped a bit last week. Glad to not have the stress to run to the store tomorrow morning. Keep safe, everybody. It's worse than you think. Carla says, how are things in the Pacific Northwest? It's working its way here to the Midwest. Uh, Yeah, you know, people in Seattle, it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about Seattle was the epicenter in the United States. Incidentally, the epicenter was around Seattle, like Seattle didn't have any cases. It was all the outlying areas, the suburbs of Seattle, if you will. There are cases in Seattle now, too. But anyway, I just felt like <laughs> that should be pointed out. But um, up until a couple of days ago, it kind of seemed like everyone was living life normally. Like when I was teaching over, uh, you know, video conference, all my colleagues were still teaching at the university. And I was like, huh, well, I guess every, you know, and I would, when I went out driving around, that you know, although traffic is less, you know, people are still out and about. They're still in the stores. They're still doing all the things. But it seems like the last couple of days, things kind of took a turn. Um, but, you know, if if I didn't know about COVID, I might not notice anything. I might go, oh, traffic's not too bad today. But it doesn't, it's not like a ghost town or anything yet. Maybe it will be. We'll see. Dora says, do U.S. citizens even have access to health care or a paid leave if they get sick? Um you know, by the nature of that question, I, I wonder if the internet paints a picture of the United States as being like completely backward when it comes to labor rights and healthcare. Um, yeah, we have uh, access to healthcare. <laughs> Not everyone, but most people, and uh, and even people who don't have access, if 
they get to the right channel, they have access. Um, I don't want to downplay the problems of access to healthcare in our society. Um, there are problems compared to other countries, that's for sure. Um, and yes, we have paid sick leave. We do. <laughs> it's just funny. It's just like, do you think? Uh, anyway, Richard. Again, I don't want to downplay the fact that other countries have better systems for labor and better systems for healthcare or more better access. You know, there's a lot of debate there. But anyway, yeah, most people in the United States, we have healthcare, we have paid sick leave. Richard, things are moving so fast here in Berlin as elsewhere. So all I can do is report the gamut of thoughts and feelings from, ah, I'll be fine, to, oh shit, I'm going to be out of work for months, to, I'm actually praying for regional lockdown, Italian style, so I get state compensation. There's a lot of uncertainty and cling to what we want to believe. Everyone thinks they will be fine. Most will be proved right, except for those that won't. My real worry is threefold. I may lose ill and elderly people close to me. Second, my, the sheer scale of economic and social upheaval. Third, the political consequences. Ash on Facebook writes, I feel like not being afraid of the coronavirus is the new trend among edgy people who assume the last 50 years of relative stability will last forever. I prepped my pantry with a couple weeks worth of food and supplies, although I hope it's all for nothing. Diva on Facebook, good old Diva, writes, Been waiting for this. You usually are fast with new things. Why have you delayed a episode about the coronavirus? Um, yeah, well, some people were asking me, but, you know, not a lot, honestly. And so I didn't feel really the pressure until recently. Also, I didn't think I had anything to say since I'm not a medical professional. And I was hearing a lot of other podcasters providing a pretty good job of the reporting. And I was like, well, am I just going to regurgitate the stats that I'm hearing on other podcasts? Plus, I kind of consider this podcast not to be like a timely one. You know, I'll often record episodes weeks in advance um, just because of my schedule and because of, you know, I don't know, just various things. You know, other podcasts, they record and they post it that day. Um, this podcast is not like that. Today is, <laughs> by the way. Uh, but anyway, so... But, you know, recently I realized that not a lot of people were providing the psychological voice or anyone for that matter. And so I thought, yeah, I'll chime in. Top fan Alan on Facebook says, I'm studying to become a social worker. I'm interested in how adult life stages affect perspectives of pandemics. Younger adults may take a more materialistic, rational view, whereas middle-aged adults may be influenced via generativity. Uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I could speculate about different age groups and their reaction, but it would probably be based on ageism. So we'll have to wait on research. In fact, one of the things that I'm quite sure will happen is in the you know five years to come, a lot of dissertations and a lot of published research will be around the sociological and you know psychological impact of COVID-19. So we'll watch out for that over the next five years. Alyssa on Facebook writes, good old Alyssa, my student Alyssa, maybe explore what vulnerable population means. I keep seeing people downplaying this because the survival rate is so high, but they don't seem to understand the risk to these vulnerable populations and how their actions can directly impact them. Uh, yeah, 
um, you know, people are like, you know, I'm not at risk, so what's all the fuss? You know, this is ageist. It's severely ageist for younger people to just be like, well, you know, old people and uh, people with underlying conditions, you know, they're the ones, they're, they're going to die anyway. And it's just like, come on, people, we're better than that. Um, so, yeah. And then you go on to say, Alyssa, and of course, the gaslighting, fear denial, and political BS that is sweeping the nation. Uh, end of comment. Yeah. Uh, it's truly bizarre to see the political BS. Um, I'm avoiding it as best I can, but I've seen glimpses of it. You know, it's science denialism at you know at its core. It's really strange to be in 2020 and to see like an uptick in people not trusting science. It's it's bizarre. Uh, as science becomes better and better, it's there's more and more people who just like to deny it. It's it's a very strange world we live in. I I cannot relate. You know, there are certain things I can relate to uh, that I don't agree with, and this is one of them. I'm just like, how did you know? What road did you take? What echo chamber weirdness led you to that? <laughs> anyway, top fan Linden, famous patron Linden says, uh, and he's in Ireland. There's panic buying here today. Also feels like I'm in a movie or a book. There were so many about pandemics in the past. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Nicolene says, I think it is a serious situation. Many people have died and will die. I am worried as I am in South Africa. It's going very, very bad here. This country will not be able to control the virus outbreak. Yeah, uh, it's truly, truly frightening. Phil says, I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. It feels overwhelming. I got a house guest in my house who is trapped here now because she is not allowed to return back to her country. Top fan Robert says, I don't see nearly as much fear mongering as I see the downplaying of valid public health interventions such as social distancing. Danielle says uh, she just provided a lot of different things, including the War of the Worlds broadcast. She just listed a bunch of things. She's like, talk about the world of the world, War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938. Yeah, um, uh, this recent event, the COVID-19, seems to echo uh, several events in the past. We can look to the past for guidance on what to do now. We can also look to the past to provide perspective of what's happening right now. And we can also, uh, anyway, so we have Spanish flu from 1918. We have the War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938, meaning that um, if you're not familiar with what happened, um, what's his face? Uh, what was his name? Anyway, a very uh, respected uh, writer, director, actor, um, you know, performer back in the day, did a broadcast on the radio saying that aliens had invaded the earth and was killing people. And it was uh, done in a way that made it seem like it was a legitimate news broadcast. And so a lot of people were convinced that it was really happening and there was sort of like a panic. Um, I think it's overblown in terms of the reporting of that. I think a lot of people actually did know it was fake, but um but, you know, is that what's happening right now? Um, hard to know. The AIDS panic in the 1980s, I'm old enough to remember that whole thing. That was several years. I mean, there was a time when uh, in the 80s when everyone was panicked about AIDS when people didn't shake hands. 
they, uh, you know, it was before it was widely understood that you couldn't get HIV from shaking hands or from a toilet seat. And so every, so gay people were already being discriminated against, but once it was believed that all gay people had HIV and you could get HIV from sitting on the same toilet seat or shaking hands or touching the same doorknob or something, gay people were really discriminated against. And so there was, and Princess Di famously like hugged, I think, someone who had HIV as a way of demonstrating, look, people, uh, you can't get it from hugging. <laughs> you have to have, you know, uh, some other transmission process. Anyway, so I, you know, there it wasn't, you know, you didn't, lock, we weren't locking down cities during the age, during the AIDS panic, but there was a tremendous amount of anxiety and a tremendous amount of overreaction. Now, are we overreacting right now? Hard to know. Uh, Mad Cow, 1995, Y2K panic of 1999. That's another thing that we might look towards. Uh, if you're old enough to remember, Y2K was scary. The way I had tech people telling me we were doomed, that airplanes were going to fall from the sky. We look back at that and we think, oh, isn't that quaint how stupid we were? Uh, we weren't stupid. We were following expert advice. We didn't know. That was a thing. Like we were heading to this to this threshold that we just didn't know. And there was evidence that really bad things could happen. Um, so, you know, are we in a situation where it's like overblown Y2K AIDS panic? Or are we in a Spanish flu situation where many people are going to die? Um, so yeah, I could talk about more on that, but I won't top fan Gre Greto light Greta light says it's a serious problem, but it's not a reason to panic. Let's just be careful and protect the fragile people. Top fan Greta light has a very succinct way of talking. Dora says the importance of moisturizing overwashed hands. Also, how to explain the virus to kids. Yeah, I'm glad someone brought up kids. It's a tough one. It's hard to say. Every kid is different. Um, but, you know, usually what I recommend people do is you want to protect children from the information as best as you can. You know, if your kid is three, you probably have a lot of control over what they're exposed to. And so it's possible to have a three-year-old that has no knowledge of the COVID-19 or any other risks or anything. There's really no point in a child of a certain age knowing about COVID-19. There, there's nothing they can do differently. You have full control over their life. You know, if you need to, you can isolate them or whatever, wash their hands a lot. But there's no point in them thinking about people dying, you know, that kind of stuff, because there's there's nothing they can, again, uh, fear motivates action, right? And if you inject fear into your child and there's nothing they can do with that and they don't have a way of mitigating their fear because they're young, you're just introducing a problem for no reason. Having said that, some kids will find out, people will talk, they'll overhear things. You want to do your best to protect them from the fear. Tell them that you're there to protect them. Tell them they don't need to worry because you have it under control, even though you don't necessarily feel that way. But, you know, you want to, there's no point in freaking them out. Um, now, if grandma contracts COVID-19 and is about to die, um, you know, 
there might be a conversation you have like grandma might die and then you have a conversation about death and that's not easy. Um, there's a, I have a whole episode on that. Go listen to that. But, um, the other thing is watch how you emote in front of them. If you're an eight out of 10 on the anxiety, you want to be careful about how much anxiety you show to your child. Because again, depending on the age of the child, they're not going to be able to deal with it. Um, and again, every kid's different. Some, some, some kids are really resilient. And some kids are very sensitive. You could have a 13-year-old or a 20-year-old, for that matter, who is overly sensitive about this sort of stuff. And you, you, know, you, you want to help them out with that by not exposing them to constant anxiety from you. Anxiety is contagious, and uh, parents need to think about how they infect their children with their own uh, anxiety. Um. Now, if they do find out about it and they do find out, you know, they are scared, um, it's a great opportunity to talk about what I just did, you know, the whole thing I gave to you in terms of the emotional management. Okay, let's evaluate. Let's have an action plan. Then once we're doing our action, let's put away our anxiety because there's no point to having the, the fear um, once you're doing the action. Let's check in with our fear tomorrow and then we'll allow ourselves to feel the fear and then we'll reevaluate the plan. This is a larger conversation of like helping kids with emotional regulation. Um, you should be having conversations like that with kids in general. Amber says, please talk about people believing this is a government created virus and conspiracy for economic controls. End of comment. Yeah, this is uh, just more BS. We live in a strange world. Um, uh, yeah. You know, it's just like let me let me talk a little bit about this. Not about Fox News or anything like that, but just the broader sort of political sociological reality of this. You know, based on expert predictions, millions are going to die from COVID nineteen. Maybe five, ten million people, and maybe half a million Americans. That's a lot of people. You know. But it's about 0.1% of the population. So to put it in perspective, the Spanish flu killed about anywhere between 1% and 6% of the population. It's hard to know, but, you know, probably a lot more than what COVID-19 is going to kill. Hard to know, but that seems to be, you know, the prediction. If that happens, let's say it does kill, it's, you know, it's heading in the direction of killing 10 million people worldwide. Um or, or that's what does happen, and we look back, what are we going to see? Are we going to see that we panicked too much? Are we going to see that we panicked not enough? Are we going to see that we had the correct amount of panic? You know, my prediction is that in a couple of years, all of this will be forgotten. You know, everything we will have learned from this experience will be forgotten. All of us will be back to arguing about tweets and such, um, and when it does come up, it'll seem quaint that we were worried and people will think we were silly for how much we panicked and we'll all go back to sleep and nothing will change, <laughs> but I'm a pessimist when it comes to society's learning from its mistakes. That's just how I am. Um, we rarely learn. We, we do learn from our mistakes at times. We do, um, like the fact that we didn't blow ourselves up from a nuclear war uh, you know, from the year 1945 to the 
year 1995 or 89 or something, there were decades of time where at any moment the button could have been pressed and everyone would have been dead. And we came to the brink many times, but, you know, we prevailed as humans. We passed the test. We did not eliminate ourselves from the planet. That risk is not over, by the way, but it's much much less we pass that we pass through that whatever threshold that is in terms of societies you know global societies and we might learn some things from this who knows i just doubt it cuz we've had other uh, global epidemics before sars mrsa bird flu h1n1 ebola um, i think h1n1 is spanish flu um, mad cow blah, blah blah we We've had other concerns in the past, and when you look at uh, what we're doing right now, we're not doing enough. Now, some countries are, and so uh, like China, you know, it's interesting to to look back because when China was going through it, you know, uh, uh, in isolation, Wuhan, people were looking at that, like, oh, my God, what draconian, they're locking everyone up, you know, they're not letting anyone leave, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but I am saying that we were looking at it like, oh, China's weird. You know, they're like this weird sort of, um, I don't know, just no human rights, blah, blah, blah. Well, now that uh, it's it's running its course through all these other societies like the United States that doesn't have measures like this, isn't building hospitals, isn't forcing people to get tested, Um. Now, people are shifting their perspective. They're starting to look at China and be like, huh, that high control government uh, thing is kind of attractive now, (laughs) right? Um, So I don't know. Maybe we'll learn something out of it. I don't know. But honestly, it pales in comparison to the problems we have with global climate change or income inequality or poverty. I mean, we have massive problems in the society that have been going on for a long time. People are dying from that in way larger amounts and people and the predictions of the deaths due to climate change are much higher uh, and the economic problems from global, global climate change are much higher and yet, you know, no one's doing shit. So, I, I, I don't know. I have hopes. I believe in humans but I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, I don't want to end the episode on that note. Um, <laughs> uh, just to give a shout out to some other people who uh, emailed uh, patron Brooke emailed she says I'm due to get married in two weeks and had a honeymoon planned for Italy and other parts of Europe I definitely would not recommend getting married during a global pandemic smiley face I also want to recognize patron Laura or Lara for writing in she's um, living in Italy she actually was the main reason why I decided to do this episode because she was we've been going back and forth and she's talking about how they, you know, had a lockdown in Italy and how everything's closed and how the rest of Europe has been sort of laughing at Italy. And now they're kind of looking to Italy as like, oh, maybe they have a good model there. My cat wants to chime in. Um, okay, I don't want to end on a negative note. We are all in this together, people. And I know all of you care who are listening out there. Channel that fear in a good way. Channel that compassion in a good way. Reach out to people. Even if it's just like, hey, I miss you. I love you. You're a good person. I just want to tell you that. Um, Or even more, you know, bigger things like voting for the right person or volunteering or helping out people who are in need. Um, 
You know, we're all capable of that, and we all have a desire to do that. So um, I believe in, I don't believe in our government, and I don't believe in our society, but I do believe in you. <laughs> um, and also, you know, if you don't have a purpose, if you don't feel like you've found your meaning in life, you deserve to find it. You deserve to build that. Maybe you were denied the opportunity. The reason why I, at the age of 16, dedicated myself to that was because I was given enough love and attention and stability by my parents that gave me the luxury to explore that early in life. You out there may have been mistreated to, to an extent where you haven't been ever given that space to really think about what you want and what you need. And no time like the present. It takes time. I've worked with clients for years, you know, working on that. It takes a long time. Once we have that meaning and we have that purpose, I don't know, for me, it makes it all easier because I'm thinking, well, worse comes to worse. I lived my purpose. I did what I was put on this planet to do. For those who haven't had that meaning and haven't found that purpose, it's a much bigger tragedy because as you're thinking about the fact that you might die, you're thinking, I, I had so many other things I needed to do. I've never had a chance to do what I wanted to do. Well, maybe this event, maybe this crisis, this global crisis can help us all really look at that and say, what kind of bullshit am I dealing with that's getting in the way of me developing a life that has meaning and purpose to me? What is that purpose? Is it having a podcast and helping others? Is it raising children who are happy and well-adjusted? Is it teaching students knowledge? Is it working at a job that you don't care about that much, but volunteering afterwards? Is it coaching a basketball team? Is it your art and your acting and your creations? Is it, um, you know, advocacy for climate change and for poverty and the homeless and for health care and for sick days? You know, what is it? Um, there are many, many. I could go on and on and on. But what is it to you? Um, and I hope that you are in that zone. And if you aren't, you deserve to be in that zone. Also, let's all just take a deep breath and remind ourselves that we're alive right now and we're doing okay. Let's relax our shoulders. Let's relax our necks. Let's remind ourselves that we're right here, we're right now, and we're, we're cool. As Maybe you're not cool. Maybe you're suffering in some way. I don't know. But we're, we're doing okay, usually. <laughs> I don't know what to say, people. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, go to Facebook, comment on that thread, or email me. Go to psychologyinseattle.com, fill out the Contact Us page. Let me know how you feel. Maybe we'll do a follow-up to this. I'm guessing we will, honestly, because I'm guessing Umberto wants to chime in. <laughs> so let me know what you think. And please take care of yourself, please, and others, because we all deserve it. 